we jump, um, let's continue to do what we have been doing, uh, and let's stand together and recite our verse for the month. Okay. Um, like I said before, if you haven't gotten the materials for these verses, um, all of the materials for these uh, um, dwell resources are in the back in the yellow box. So, uh, let's recite this month's verse. Light in a messenger's eyes brings joy to the heart, and good news gives health to the bones. Proverbs fifteen thirty. All right, you may be seated. Um, Eli, you can go ahead and bring the lights up, buddy. Rachel Den Hollander is, by all accounts, a hero. Uh, Many of you are probably familiar with her name. She was the first of hundreds of women and girls uh, to come forward and testify against Larry Nasser, the disgraced physician from Michigan State University and USA Gymnastics. And it is in large part because of her that Nasser is spending the rest of his life behind bars. Now, I understand that there are children who are present and watching, um, and abuse of any kind, especially uh, sexual abuse, is a triggering and sensitive issue, and so for that reason, I will try to be discreet. But it's also important that these types of things are talked about in church, um, and that these things are talked about at home uh, for the protection of our children, for the accountability that is needed in what have been very broken systems. And while this sermon is not about sexual assault, it is impossible to talk about Rachel Den Hollander outside of that context. And so ultimately where we're going to be going is in showing that Rachel Den Den Hollander uh, provides for us a compelling example of lament. Last week, we began a series on the book of Lamentations. And we established a number of things that are true of lament. If you missed that sermon, please go back and listen to it on the podcast. Um, Do not try to listen on the Facebook feed. Uh, That thing messed up and messed up bad. So half the sermon is missing off of there. So go back and use the podcast. And I'm telling you that it is a sermon that every single person needs to listen to. And I'm not saying that because I'm the one that preached it. Okay, Um, It is because every single one of us are sinners. And we all need to know what it looks like to repent. And so I needed that sermon probably more than anyone else. Um, So go back and listen to that if you missed it. Among the things that we established, we established that lament is a cry to a father that we know is listening. As N.T. Wright puts it, it is proof of the relationship that we have with God. It is not merely a cry of anguish, though absolutely it is that. It is a directed cry, specifically directed upwards. It is welcoming God into the wreckage that is caused by our sin. And so we talked about the difference between lament and shame. Both lament and shame feel bad about the things that we have done, but one causes us to run and hide in the shadows, while the other causes us to run to God. Lament, as we talked about, is the godly sorrow that leads to repentance without regret, while shame is the worldly sorrow that leads to death. And so in order to be truly repentant of our sins, we need to learn how to lament over the things that we've done. And so today we're going to look at the reciprocal of that idea, that we must also learn to lament over the things that have been done to us. We must learn how to welcome God into the wreckage and the sins and the hurts done to us. 
raise your hand if you have ever been sinned against by someone. Okay? Uh, if someone has ever hurt you in any way. Uh, if someone has ever treated you poorly, crushed you, insulted you. Well, then this message is for you. Uh, today, we will see that lament is both a pained cry for mercy as well as a cry for justice. Uh, Rachel Den Hollander was a competitive gymnast. At the age of 15, she severely injured her back, leaving her with numbness in her leg. So she was referred to one of the top physicians in the sport, Larry Nasser. She and her mother drove 70 miles to his clinic in East Lansing at Michigan State University. They hoped that he could fix what was going on. Instead, at the very first appointment that she had with him, he molested her. In subsequent appointments, he continued to do so. Under the pretenses of medical motivation, he violated her repeatedly. For many of the reasons that are so common to abused women, she did not initially speak up. She was, of course, irreparably damaged in so many ways. Nothing from that point on would ever be the same. She quit gymnastics, poured herself into school, and eventually became a lawyer. She met her husband, and they moved to Louisville, where, she, where he matriculated at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. It was there, one day, that she read a news story about USA Gymnastics having covered up sexual abuse complaints against coaches. And it brought her instantly back to the horrors that she had faced and the man who was still, at that point, in the shadows. And so, she decided to speak up. And bravely, brutally, and publicly did so. Larry Nasser was investigated and brought to trial. And there, 203 women and girls spoke of their traumas that they had suffered at his hands. Nasser was sentenced to 175 years in prison. During this trial, Den Hollander had the opportunity to deliver a victim impact statement, part of which was directed straight to Nasser. And what she said to her abuser in her statement is gut-wrenching, yet it is filled to the brim with gospel truth. Of course, I don't have time to read the entire statement, um, but I do want to read some excerpts from her victim impact statement. And I highly encourage you to read the statement in its entirety, along with an interview that she did with CNN afterwards. Maybe we'll post those things later this week. Um, but here's what's com particularly compelling about the statement that she made. She did two seemingly opposite things at once. She expressed forgiveness, but also demanded justice. She painted in very clear words the damage that had been done to her and to hundreds of others. And yet, she also pointed everyone, including Nasser, to Christ. She in no way minimized anything that he did. In fact, she highlighted it. She emphasized it. She called it out. But at the same time, she spoke of God's goodness. She described a wasteland. And yet, she also welcomed God into the wreckage. She lamented. In vivid detail, she describes the horrors that she faced that he perpetrated against her and all of the other victims. She spoke of being destroyed, hopeless, 
ill-equipped to pursue justice, railroaded by a systemic abuse of power. And then she spoke directly to Nasser. And here is only part of what she said. And again, I beg you to read the rest. She said this, You have become a man ruled by selfish and perverted desires. A man defined by his daily choices repeatedly to feed that selfishness and perversion. You chose to pursue your wickedness no matter what it cost others. And the opposite of what you have done is for me to choose to love sacrificially, no matter what it costs me. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you spoke of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that appeal, it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God loving himself so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin that he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds could erase what you have done. It comes from repentance which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. In the Bible, uh, if the Bible you carry says, it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble, and you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you carry speaks of a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. She listed for him in this statement ways that she has experienced love and beauty and grace and a full life, and how his decisions were pure evil that kept him from experiencing any of those things in his life, and that she pitied him for that. She said, in losing the ability to call evil what it is, without mitigation, without minimization, you have lost the ability to define and enjoy love and goodness. You have fashioned for yourself a prison that is far, far worse than any I could ever put you in, and I pity you for that. And then, after lamenting what he had done, she turned to the judge. She described the tears that she cried, For every little girl destroyed by evil. She implored the judge and everyone else to consider how much each girl is worth. How valuable they are. How deserving they are of justice and protection. And that the verdict will send a clear message of whether or not they matter. She said to the judge, I ask that you hand down a sentence that tells us that what was done to us matters. That we are known. We are worth everything worth the greatest protection the law can offer, the greatest measure of justice available. I plead with you as you deliberate the sentence to give to Larry, send a message that these victims are worth everything. I plead with you to impose the maximum sentence under the plea agreement, because everything 
is what these survivors are worth. Rachel Den Hollander was sinned against grievously. And she publicly lamented over the sins committed against her and so many others. She demanded justice. Yet, she also implored repentance and spoke of gospel truth and grace and love. That, my friends, is what it means to lament over the sins against us. And that is what we will see in Lamentations chapter 2. Lamentations chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. How the Lord, in his anger, has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe, and he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruin its strongholds, and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the cities. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you, that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry, we have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we longed for. Now we have seen it. Now we have it. 
The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest. Give your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see. With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb? the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned, as if to a festival day, my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised my enemy destroyed. So, hopefully that blessed you richly. Um, the first thing that I want us to note here in this chapter is the perspective. So in chapter 1, what we saw is that Jeremiah was personifying the city of Jerusalem. He personified it as Lady Zion. And in chapter 1, Lady Zion is crying out to God over her own sin. Here, the perspective shifts. Now the perspective zooms out and Jeremiah speaks as he is looking over the city. It is from the outside looking in. And we talked about last week that tradition teaches that Jeremiah was writing this from a grotto in the side of the hill of Golgotha, the place of the skull, where one day Jesus would be crucified for the sins of the people. And so Jeremiah is sitting there looking down upon the destruction. The perspective has shifted then from sinner to sinned against. The city in chapter 1 lamenting over its own sin. Jeremiah the prophet in chapter 2 lamenting over the sins of the people. And that is incredibly significant. That shift in perspective is very important because Jeremiah who is writing this is not the one who's been living in sin. Jeremiah has been the prophet telling the people to turn from their sin. They didn't listen to Jeremiah for decades and decades. And so now, because they didn't listen, everyone's life is destroyed, including Jeremiah. Jeremiah is speaking of his own loss. In a very real sense, Jeremiah has been sinned against in a grievous way. Jeremiah has been living righteously while the rest of the people have rebelled. And because of their sin, he loses his home as well. His beloved city is destroyed. His loved ones are carried away into exile or killed. He said himself, those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. So he has been sinned against in a terrible way. And so, as he is mourning here, and very obviously mourning, we cannot lose sight of the fact that he is mourning a loss that he is suffering. A loss that is not his fault. He is a victim 
of these people's sin. His life has been destroyed through no fault of his own. Not unlike Rachel Den Hollander and the hundreds of other victims whose lives were destroyed through no fault of their own. Now, let's ask ourselves, what are our typical responses when someone else sins against us? Well, one that is common is to sin against them, to sin right back, to have the perspective of revenge. I'll get you back for this. You sinned against me, I'm going to sin against you. This is often what my kids do when they're fighting with each other. One hits the other, and so the other thinks that they can hit back. One says something mean, the other one says something mean back. And then when I try to intervene, the response that I often get is, well, she did it first, well, he did this, and then it's back and forth, back and forth, and I'm like, stop it! That's not how we deal with sin. But it's our typical response that when someone sins against us, we justify sinning back against them. Which is where we get the phrase, hurt people, hurt people. When someone has been hurt, they often lash out and hurt someone else. Another response to sin against us is to internalize it. And in internalizing it, we blame ourselves for the sins committed against us. We listen to the lie that it is somehow our own fault. And that the sins of other people is somehow a determination of our own worth. It must be because of me. There must be some reason that I was sinned against in this way some way that I have failed, something that I did not do right, something that I could have done better, and on and on and on. And the enemy whispers lies of self-worth to that person who is a victim of the sin of others. But that is not what Jeremiah does. Jeremiah, when he is sinned against in a grievous way, laments. And just like we need to lament our own sin, we also need to learn how to lament the sins of others. Lamenting, as you recall, is welcoming God into the wreckage. What the enemy wants you to do when you have been sinned against is to fold within yourself. To blame yourself. To second guess yourself. To determine your worth and your value by what has been done to you. The last thing, the last thing that the enemy wants you to do is lament. Because lamenting is bringing God into the pain. So, what does it look like to lament the sins against you? And by doing so, welcome God into the wreckage. Here's point number one. Lament agrees with God in judgment while it mourns with God in pain. Lament agrees with God in judgment while it mourns with God in pain. There is a terrible misunderstanding when it comes to the idea of forgiveness. For some reason, we have interpreted the scriptural commands to forgive as an expectation that we take the sins of others and we just sweep them under the rug. Pretend that they are not there. Pretend that they are not a big deal. 
that we must say it's okay when it is absolutely not okay. We, we think that forgiveness means downplaying the sins against us or finding some way that we can reduce its ugliness or avoid the consequences or minimize the consequences or that reconciliation is a requirement. And those things are not true. Last week we talked about how shame makes you hide from the damage, refusing to really look at it. The same is true for sins against us. Shame causes us to try to make things better than what they are. Pretty it up. It is a hiding strategy. Lament doesn't do that. Lament looks fully at the wreckage. Rachel Den Hollander had to do an incredibly painful and embarrassing thing. And that was open her trauma to the entire world. She intentionally requested that cameras would be in the courtroom, that there would be journalists, that there would be lots and lots of witnesses, because she wanted to make sure that the wreckage was fully captured in her words and in the words of others. This is what Jeremiah does in this chapter. He is fully, completely, totally, poetically describing the wreckage. We remember that this is a poem, that um, in four of the five chapters, it is an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet, that each verse begins with the subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so in this poem, Jeremiah is purposely using figures of speech, hyperbole, and expressions of his own emotions. He is poetically expressing what he is feeling about everything that he is seeing. Ruins, destruction, slavery, cannibalism, weeping and gnashing of teeth. This, what he is doing, is welcoming a camera crew in to capture every detail that is burning in front of him. But he does something else that we can't miss. He speaks the entire chapter as an act of God. Not that God is the evil one in this scenario. No, it is very clear that the people have been the evil ones, and God is the one who is enacting righteous judgment over the sins that have been committed. When he says, in so many ways, God has destroyed everything, he's not blaming God. He's not pointing the finger at God and saying, God, how dare you do this? These are not words of indictment against the Lord. He is not railing against God. He is joining God, siding with God, in his judgment over the city. He is, in this way, agreeing with God. We cannot forget what he said in chapter 1, verse 18, where he said, The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. Hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. He says, very, very clearly, The Lord is in the right. What is happening is correct. This is just judgment over the sins of the people. He is agreeing with God in every bit of this judgment. 
But at the same time, he is also deeply mourning. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. He says, My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the street of the city. So, so he agrees with God. He says, this is what should be happening. The Lord is in the right. But at the same time, I am, I am weeping. My, my stomach is churning. I, I, I'm, I'm destroyed. I am mourning over what is happening. I, I'm seeing the people that I love, the place that I love. And, and it's ruined. And my heart is broken. He has been sinned against. And he agrees with the judgment. And yet... He also mourns. He feels that pain deeply. My friends, this is such a fine balance to walk. To both agree with God in judgment and also mourn with God in pain. Both of those things are necessary. They, in fact, depend on each other in order to be a healthy lament. If you take either one away, you will fall into one of the enemy's traps. So, if you agree with God in judgment, but do not mourn, then that is saying to those who have sinned against you, to hell with you. The base emotion there is anger. And and the anger is natural. The anger is justified. You have been sinned against grievously. You ought to be angry when you have been sinned against. But that anger cannot be the driving force. Joining God in judgment without mourning is to just participate in the work of destroying someone. And isn't that so tempting to do? Revenge. I'll get back at you for what you've done to me. Or I'll sit back with popcorn and I'll watch the show as God destroys you. A great example of that in scripture is Jonah. Jonah was commanded to go to the enemies of the people of Israel and preach the gospel. And he didn't want to do that at all. He wanted them to die. Jonah wanted the Ninevites to die for their sins against him and his people. And even after he reluctantly goes and God had to transport him in a fish in order to get him there, even after he reluctantly goes and he preaches the gospel to them, after he does that, he sits outside the city hoping that they're going to reject the truth and be judged. Look at this. Uh, Go to uh, Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Uh, Eli will put it up on the screen. So this is after he's preached the gospel, okay? And this is also after the people inside the city have responded to the gospel. Uh, Let me back up. This this is not on the screen, but uh, let me back up to verse 10 of chapter 3 where it says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And here's Jeremiah's response, or Jonah's response. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? 
That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to, abang- slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So the people respond. The people accept the gospel. They turn from their sins. God relents from destroying them. And Jeremiah, I'm sorry, I keep saying that. Jonah is teed off. He can't believe it. He's like, this is why I didn't want to come here in the first place. Because I know what kind of God you are. I know that you're a loving God. I know that you're a gracious God. I knew, I knew that you were going to show grace to them. And I hate that. Because I want them to be destroyed. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? (laughs) Uh, Jonah, why are you mad, bro? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So he sits down and he crosses his arms. He uh, puts a little bit of shelter over himself and he says, I'm just going to wait and see. I'm going to wait and see if the meteor strike happens. I'm going to wait for, for fire from heaven to consume the people. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished In a night, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. God looks at Jonah and he confronts him and says, I'm the one that makes the plants grow and die. I'm the one who's in control of life and death. And you are sitting there trying to take the credit for something that you are not even in charge of. And you are treating a plant as more important than 120,000 people who don't know the truth. He, he, He says, Jonah, listen to me. I love these people. Just like I love you. And if you think you're any better than those people, then I need to teach you a lesson. Jonah hated those people. And so he was joining God in judgment, but he was not joining God in mourning. And so God had to tell him, these people matter to me. They're my children. I love them, and you need to as well. Even though, yes, I agree with you, they don't know their right hand from their left. They have lived in sin, yet I love them. So that's what it looks like to join God in judgment, but not in mourning. Well, what does it look like to do the opposite? If you mourn, but don't agree with God in judgment, then what you are doing is you are taking into your own hands the responsibility of dealing with the pain. 
you are folding within yourself. You are saying, it is up to me to enact judgment or not enact judgment. It is up to me to handle the consequences of these actions. The problem is that ends in nothing but despair because you cannot provide hope. You cannot provide healing. Just like God looked at Jonah in that, in that scenario and said, that plant, could, could you make it come up? No, you couldn't. You, you could not make a plant come up or wither. You're not in charge of the wind and you're not in charge, uh, in charge of life. You cannot provide healing. You cannot provide a good future. All you can envision is the brokenness. It is hopeless because it relies on you. Joining God in judgment is also trust that he is able to rebuild what has been destroyed. Joining God in judgment is an act of faith. Mourning without him is to say there is no hope. And scripture clearly tells us that we do not mourn like those who have no hope. So lament does both. It joins God in judgment, and yet it also mourns. But it doesn't stop there. Point number two. Lament calls out the sin, but also calls the sinner. Lament calls out the sin but also calls the sinner. You see, what lament over the sins of others does, lamenting over their sin, properly identifies the root of their destruction. That root is that they have been deceived by Satan. Remember, last week we looked at verse 19 of chapter 1. We talked about how sin deceives us. Uh, It says, I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. And so we talked about last week how sin deceives us. It it causes us to chase the carrot. And so we end up being destroyed because no matter how far we run, we never catch the carrot. And we run further and further and further away from good and further into destruction. Jeremiah's perspective in chapter 1 is that the city is speaking for itself. His perspective in chapter 2 is his own lament over the city. And so here in chapter 2, he does the very same thing in verses 13 and 14 that he did in chapter 1, verse 19. So, verses 13 and 14 comes from the perspective of an observer. He says, What can I say for you? To what compare you? O daughter of Jerusalem, what can I liken you to that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. So here from the perspective of an observer, he properly identifies what's going on. In chapter 1, he says, I have been deceived. In chapter 2, he says, you have been deceived. He properly points out that these people are in this situation because they have been led astray by lies. They've been coddled 
Instead of having their sin called out, instead of having their leaders calling them to repentance, they have been told, it's okay. Everything is fine. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You don't have to change. You can be in good fellowship with God and still live the way that you're living. As long as you believe the right set of facts about God, as long as you, you, know, you do all the things on the checklist, you're good. Let's not have any awkward conversations about sin. Every day is Friday. Just believe in your heart and be positive. I'm not going to talk about repentance or calling you out for the things that you've done. I'm going to tell you to smile. God loves you. Jeremiah does something here that is incredibly mature. Maybe what I just did wasn't mature. but What Jeremiah does is so mature. He, he has been grievously sinned against, right? But even in his pain, his heart is breaking for these people that he loves because they have allowed themselves to be deceived. Even in his pain, he is still saying, I still want the truth for you. I, I, I want you to see how you've been deceived so that you won't be deceived any longer. In her witness statement, Rachel De, De, Den Hollander looked right at Larry Nasser and clearly tells him that he has been deceived. She said, When a person can harm another human being, especially a child, without true guilt, they have lost the ability to truly love. Larry, you have shut yourself off from every truly beautiful and good thing in this world that could have and should have brought you joy and fulfillment, and I pity you for it. You could have had everything you pretended to be. Every woman stood up here, truly loved you as an innocent child, real, genuine love for you, and it did not satisfy. I have experienced the soul-satisfying joy of a marriage built on sacrificial love and safety and tenderness and care. I have experienced true emotion in its deepest joy. And it is beautiful and sacred and glorious. And that is a joy you have cut yourself off from ever experiencing. And I pity you for it. And so she properly identifies that he has, by his own deception led himself into a pit of destruction, and sucked others down with him. But she doesn't just point out how wrong he's been. She then also calls him to something deeper. She said, I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of your guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Later on, in an interview for CNN, she was asked about her witness statement. And the interviewer asked her, Given your concerns that Christians can use God's call to forgiveness as a weapon against survivors, did you feel at all apprehensive telling Nasser that you forgave him? And she said, I did to an extent, because forgiveness can really be misapplied. Taken within the context of my statement, with the call for justice, And with what I've done to couple forgiveness and justice, it should not be misunderstood. But I found it very interesting, to be honest, that every single Christian publication or speaker that has mentioned my statement has only ever focused on the aspect of forgiveness. Very few, if any of them, have recognized what else came with that statement, which was a swift and intentional pursuit of God's justice. 
Both of those are biblical concepts. Both represent Christ. We do not do well when we focus on only one of them. Del Hollander spit in fire. She was then asked to define repentance, and she said this, Repentance is a full and complete acknowledgement of the depravity of what someone has done in comparison with God's holy standard. And I do believe that entails an acknowledgement of that and a going in the opposite direction. It means you have repented to those you have harmed and seek to restore those you have hurt. Amen, Rachel. You guys, this is what lament does. Lament calls for justice. It mourns the pain and it calls the sinner to repent and turn himself to God. And Jeremiah very clearly does that in this chapter. Look at verses 18 and 19 and how he calls them to repentance. He says, Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Here he begs with them, he pleads with them for the sake of your children. Pour out your heart to God. Do not delay. Do not go halfway. Repent. Repent of your sin. Turn from your sin. Realize what you've done. Look at the wreckage. This is what he does. He tells the sinner to look at the wreckage. This is what lament against the sin, uh, uh, lament for the sin done against you does for the sinner. It causes the sinner to look at the wreckage too. Last week we said shame causes us to run and hide in the shadows. Shame, when we have sinned, says don't look at the wreckage. Don't don't look at the consequences. Don't, Don't look at the fallout. When you are calling someone to repentance, you are directing their eyes to the fallout. It is not to look at someone and say, hey, listen, it's okay. It's no big deal. Calling someone to repentance doesn't mean sweeping things under the rug, minimizing, hey, listen, water under the bridge, let's... Let's let the past be the past. No, calling someone to repentance is what Jeremiah does here. He says, for the sake of your children, call out to the Lord. For the lives of the children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. He says, guys, look at the wreckage. Look at what you've done. And this is not to shame them. This is not Jeremiah heaping shame upon them. This is Jeremiah trying to do for them what he did in chapter 1. God, come into the wreckage of my decisions. Come into the wreckage and the destruction of what I've done. Let me direct my eyes toward you and not hide in the shadows. Calling someone to repentance is calling them out of the shadows. Saying, me and God are out here in the destroyed city. Come with us. For the sake of your children, repent. And then amazingly, amazingly, he also asked God for mercy. Verse 20. Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? 
In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You've killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned, as if to a festival day, my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. Here, after perfectly displaying the destruction, after highlighting the sin, after calling the sinners to repent, Jeremiah asks God for mercy. God, look at all of this and respond with mercy. Should this really be how it is? Should this actually happen? Lament joins with God in judgment. It mourns the sin's painful fallout, and it also asks for mercy on both your behalf and on behalf of the person who has sinned. It's important to see that Jeremiah doesn't pile on to what God is saying here. He doesn't say, God is judging you, and you know what? I have some of my own judgments to speak to you as well. No, in verse 17, he says, The Lord has done what he has purposed. He's carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He says, listen, God did exactly what he said he would. You have to accept that. He doesn't pile on himself. He directs it back to the Lord, and he says, Realize that what is happening has been promised by the Lord. This is not a surprise. He promised that he would do this, and now he has done it. He warned for generations, for hundreds of years, if you sin, there will be consequences. Walk in my covenant, and there will be blessings. He's like, God is doing exactly what he said he would do. And so Jeremiah doesn't pile on to that. He says, accept the promised word of God. My friends, this is only possible with Christ. Without Christ as the guiding force of your life, it is impossible to lament sin. You can only be damaged by it. You can only cope in very limited ways with the fallout. Without Christ, all you can do is rely on yourself or other broken people to somehow mitigate the damage, to somehow numb yourself from the effects of the damage or distract yourself or pretend that it isn't there or cast your eyes away from it or put yourself into the shadows pretending that it is the light. And that is an empty, vain, and dissatisfying pursuit. The sin against you will continue to be a cancer, growing as a tumor within the shattered darkness of your soul. Understand that I am not asking you right now to be reconciled to the person or people who have sinned against you. In some cases, reconciliation is appropriate. In other cases, it isn't. I'm not asking you in any way to downplay the pain. I'm not asking you to minimize the fallout or in any way make the destruction more palatable. I'm not asking you to avoid the truth. 
I'm trying to throw you a lifeline. To say that in the middle of the destruction, there is a God who loves you more deeply than words could ever describe. A God who will make all of the wrong things right. He will judge justly. He will bind up the broken hearts. In the words of Tolkien, he will make every sad thing come untrue. He will bind up the broken. And in the meantime, he will join you in your lament. If you cry out to him, he is listening. That's the entire point of lament, crying out to a God that you know is listening, who you trust is there for you as a good father to pick you up and to comfort you, to look at the wreckage with you, to sit up on the hill in that grotto with his loving arms around you, to give you hope in the middle of the chaos. I don't want to spoil next week, okay? But I have to tell you, Lamentations 3 is one of the most incredible chapters in all of the Bible. It is, in my opinion, one of the top five chapters in all of Scripture. It is simultaneously filled with the deepest pain of the soul and yet also the most unshakable hope in the goodness of God may be ever expressed in history. I can't wait to preach next week's passage. But today, I urge you to consider whether or not your way of dealing with the hurt in your life has brought you any lasting comfort. Has any form of coping ever made a lasting difference? course not. There is a better way. And the better way is to lament to a loving father, one who has been hurt by sin infinitely more than we could ever imagine and yet loves us ceaselessly. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we lament. There is so much sin against us. But God, we know that there is so much sin against you, and yet you love us so much. I know the sin in my own life. And I can't believe that you still love me. But yet I know that you do. God, so many of us have been hurt in so many ways by other people. Unfairly, we have been wronged. We've been taken advantage of. So many people have been destroyed by the actions of others and are rightly and justifiably angry. God, I pray that each one of us would learn to lament over that sin and to 